Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. We're going to continue and finish today our series on encounters, and for several weeks we've been talking through what it is to have these encounters with Jesus and what they mean to us and what... Are, are, are there any relevance to that today? I think we'd all agree that this is just a messed up world. Um, we most certainly are leaving to our next generation challenges that we couldn't have imagined. Uh, we're, we're in a situation where it seems though every time I turn on the news we have another crisis. Uh, I, I've gotten, if you're like me, I'm, I'm just tired of watching the news. I'm tired of the crisis. It's like everywhere I turn, everything we do, something else is wrong, something else has happened. And yet, it seems as though we keep looking every year for a solution, but can't seem to find it. We cannot find permanency in the solution. But you know, I've discovered in in every story in history, every epic story told in mankind, there is some picture of good versus evil. If you go see a war movie, you see the allies versus the Axis. If you see a Revolutionary War movie, you see America versus the British. If you watched TV yesterday, you saw Georgia versus Florida. I mean, you just, everywhere you turn, you see good versus evil. I mean, um, now, you know, on, on the other hand, having experienced the pain of yesterday, I now know how Tennessee fans feel, and um, that it de- grieves me deeply, but congratulations to you um, folks. And, um, but in every great story, you have this this picture of good versus evil. And through the series, if you've noticed, we've tried to take a picture of what these encounters with individuals look like and how they address the, the major challenges in our world today. And because there are some significant issues. But when we encounter Jesus today in the good versus evil storyline of our lives, I think sometimes we, we forget that Jesus doesn't primarily come to us as an example. He doesn't primarily uh, take on the job to be a model for us to answer the big questions. I don't even think he's primarily a teacher telling us the answers to those questions. He comes as a savior. He comes as the answer to the big question to do for us what we would hope that we could do for ourselves but simply cannot. And so you look at that and you say the big lesson learned over the last five weeks is that if we want our lives to be changed forever, we desperately need a personal encounter with Jesus. Today, we want to take a look at his public life and go backward a little bit as to how it began and how that ministry was launched. And two events happened back to back in three of the four Gospels. These are portrayed and pictured back to back. One is his baptism. The second is how he is in the desert fasting for 40 days and Satan approaches him and Jesus takes on the worst meeting. Think of the worst meeting you've ever had in your life and imagine that. Think the meeting that you got fired at, the meeting that you went for bankruptcy to, the divorce court that you were at. Just picture the worst meeting you ever went to. Jesus goes and takes that meeting for you as he meets Satan in the middle of the desert. And today, let's take a look at how his encounter with Satan in the desert, how it, how it looks and how it applies to our life. So look with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 3, and why don't we begin in, let's say, verse 13 where it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So if you're here today and you're wondering, well, what about baptism for me? Is that something I should do? Like next, next hour, we'll baptize three people. It happens almost weekly around here where three people say, wait a minute, I want to fulfill what Jesus asked me to do. So what Jesus did was give us a model. He did give us a picture. What he did, we would want to do. And so he says, so let's do this so that it will fulfill all righteousness. Then be consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, which is God, say this. Are you ready? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, nothing sounded better than to hear my dad tell me, son, I'm proud of you. You know, it's interesting. I don't ever remember a time my dad saying that. But you know, in in my heart, what I longed for more than even I love you was for my dad to say, son, I'm proud of you. Don't you all have some longing in your heart that somebody looks at you and says, I'm so proud of you. It's there, isn't it? God, Heavenly Father, descends like a dove and rests on His Son and says, I'm so proud of you. Before baptism between services today, I'll meet with those three people over in the hallway and and I'll give them this picture. I'll tell them, I'll say, you know, when... When I was a little boy, about nine years old, I was baptized, and my pastor was a tall guy by the name of Charles Hawley, and he looked at me, and he called me Chucky, and he said, Chucky, do you know why you're getting baptized today? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, tell me why you're getting baptized. And what came out of my mouth was, because I didn't really know quite what to answer. And he said, Chucky, you get baptized for three reasons. You get baptized, one, because Jesus told us to. He said, at the end of Matthew, he said, go, make disciples, baptize them. The picture of baptism, if you read this here, is that Jesus came up out of the water. To come up out of the water, he had to have one time been under the water. And he said, go, make, be baptized. But then the second reason he said was, well, Jesus was baptized. If he was baptized, man, that's, why wouldn't you do that? And then the third reason, he's pointed at his wedding ring. And he said, you see that ring? Yes, sir. He said, what do you know about me when I wear that ring? I said, well, because you're married. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, watch this. He said, if I take that ring off, am I still married? And I had to think for a minute. I thought, hmm. And he said, of course I'm still married. And of course, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course you're married. You know? And he put it back on and he said, but it shows you I'm married. That's what baptism does. It doesn't make me a follower of Jesus. It doesn't make me a Christian. It doesn't give me a punch ticket to heaven. It simply says I am a Christian. And I thought then, man, that's what I want to do. I want to identify with that because that's what Jesus did. He came to John and he said, that's what I'm going to do. And then God said... Just like he'll say to those three people today, look at my kid, I'm so proud of you. If you're here today and you've questioned, maybe I should be baptized, maybe it's my time, think of this. Wouldn't it be great to know that God, your heavenly Father, looks at you and says, that's my kid, I'm so proud of you. That's what he said to the Lord Jesus, I'm so proud of you. But then look what happens right after that. At the beginning of of chapter 4, it says, then, that's a big word, then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Greatest understatement of all time. 
And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, let me just say to you, if I haven't eaten, eaten in 40 days and Satan comes to me and says, listen, you have the power to turn these bricks into Krispy Kremes, let me tell you something. I'm wolfing on them with a hot sign, right? Are you with me? And Jesus says, no, it's written, whoa, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. Then in verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Steve and Marty, you remember being there? And imagine that Jesus standing there and, and Satan saying, okay, watch this. Um, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said again, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you I, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's important to recognize how the baptism and the temptation are uniquely and wonderfully connected. And they are connected tightly by this one word, then. It is connected by the word then. Then God spoke words of powerful assurance. This is my son, who I love, who I'm pleased with. I'm proud of him. Then Jesus was led to the spirit into the desert to be tempted. Then it's almost like a therefore. And what have you learned? Wherever you read therefore in the Bible, you stop and say, what's that therefore, therefore? That's what this then is here for. That's then is to say, I am proud of you. I love you. You're mine. But look out, stuff is coming your way. You see, here's the thing that I think we've got to all grasp and, and handle. Somehow, some way, through listening to enough TV preachers, we have believed the lie that if you have just enough faith, nothing bad is going to happen to your life. Let's settle that once and for all. If it happened to Jesus, how much more is it going to happen to us? I mean, this life is full of junk. We're going to deal with junk. Tomorrow, you're going to deal with junk. Today, you're going to deal with something that's weird. Your kids are going to do something stupid. You're going to do something stupid. Your spouse is going to be something stupid. You know what I've learned? We are all a quarter of an inch away from doing something stupid. Aren't we? And at the end of the day, what the Scripture is teaching us here is, listen, if it's going to happen to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. But you say, Chuck, what if I work harder? What if I try harder? What if I make a better effort being good? What if I go to church more, go on a mission trip, give more? Won't that take care of things? Listen to me. Even the sharpest, wealthiest, healthiest person on the planet can't escape the junk of everyday life. If it's going to come to Jesus, it's most certainly going to come to us. And you know what? Here's what I know. I'm looking around at a lot of people who are now, you got junk in your life. Let me just stop and say, see this guy right here? I got a lot of junk going on in my life. Here's the good news. If God the Father is proud of his son, if God the Father is more powerful than the evil that he's dealing with, that same God longs to be your father to care for you and be more powerful than the junk you deal with as well. You say, well, Chuck, that's, that's pretty interesting. Because you see, Matthew here, after that word then, Jesus is handled, handled, handled over into this battling encounter with Satan himself. I mean, watch this. God's power, God's love, God's blessing. Then evil, temptation, aloneness, thirst, hunger. Then is that powerful word. Things are going good for you now, but then. 
I remember, Chuck, things were great, and then. I remember when my marriage was perfect, and then. I remember my kids would all obey, but then. I remember when I had that great job, I had money in the bank, and then. Matthew's sending us a message. Nobody's exempt from challenges and problems and temptations. It's interesting to me. We've seen it in our own family. We've seen it in our own church. But it's part of God's often mysterious and wonderful plan for turning us into something great. Haven't you ever had one of those days where you just stopped and said, God, I'm ready for you to work on somebody else to be great? But it's your turn. And somehow we got to learn to wear that a little bit like a badge of honor. I mean, if we're not suffering at the moment, we often take credit for it in our own mind. Like it's luck or it's grace. It's become so this, we're living better or we're living smarter or we're taking greater credit. But in Matthew, we, th- we see that the one person in history that didn't deserve all the junk, the one person in history that really did live a good life, even a perfect life, and merited the full love of God, he actually earned a pass from suffering. He earned a pass from all the inconvenience it brings, but his life became a life that included grief and poverty and betrayal and loss and torture and finally death. Tried and executed in an act of injustice, everything would go wrong from that point on. And what does this show us? One thing it demonstrates is the complexity and the unyielding power of evil in this world. Now, let me just stop and say, when it comes to the evil in this world, it's important for us to get this picture. Some of us take this strictly physical look at this tangible evil and see it as some kind of material force, that everything has a natural scientific answer to a complex equation of good versus evil. And with that view, then our answer is, then what we need is simply educational, psychological, physiological, or even pharmacological answers. But millennia now have passed, and we're still shocked at the capacity we have within our own heart for evil, for bad in this world. You don't have to look far before there's bad around you, do you? You don't have to look far before there's evil around you. Here's the kicker. The bridge that gaps between what we can and can't do is found in the Bible. I mean, there's a gap in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources that are available for us to cope with it. There's a gap there. I mean, you can see every therapist from now to Atlanta. You can see see every counselor from Atlanta to Flowery Branch, but there's still a gap. And the gap has to be filled. The kicker is the, the Bible has a bridge for it. That in addition to the lack of educational or personal injustice or physiological or even psychological imbalances, there's really forces of spiritual evil in this world. And we tend to greatly underestimate the power of evil deep down. Deep down, we often cling to the false belief that if we're good, life will be good to us. You see, there's just the Bible just doesn't support that theory. You can't be good enough to be good. Now, on the one hand, that's deeply depressing. I mean, I can't be good. Chuck, I'm killing myself here trying to be good. I mean, you, you, you teach us every week about what to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing this. And junk still happens. Listen, for us, this, this is a big deal, all right? I mean, this is a big deal. I want you to take a picture of this next slide that comes up and then go ahead and post this or use this this week. For us to believe that our moral goodness 
result in a good life is a simplistic understanding of God's purpose for us. He is infinitely wise. He can see the end from the beginning. He has good purposes for us hidden in this mess. For reference, see Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You say, well, Chuck, you don't understand the mess I'm in. There's no way God can use this. Here's the good news. God saw it before it was going to happen. God is allowing it to happen for a purpose, and God will use it for something good should you choose to allow him to do that through you. It will be one of two things. It will be a crutch that you will lean on the rest of your life to say, I can't, or God will use this as a stepping stone that you might climb over it and find victory if you'll allow him to do that. So here's the big deal about this encounter. When the Bible speaks about our, about our encounters with evil in this life, it uses battle language. So if we know that, that out there and, and, and there's a battle, we have three questions we need to answer. Number one, we need to answer, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? Well, Scripture's pretty clear here. The enemy is Satan himself. And you say, well, Chuck, I don't believe in a literal devil. You say, well, Chuck, I don't, I don't believe that there's evil in the world. They're just evil people. Whatever your faith background, whether you have any or not, I think we would agree there is evil in this world. Now, if you're like me and you trust that this, this book, this Bible is God's word, then we understand that Satan is at the core of this evil. So we need to understand who's the enemy. The second thing we need to understand is where's the front of the battle? Where's the battlefront at? Where are we at? And number three, what's our defense for the battle? I mean, Christianity, give us a view of answer to question number one. It's Satan, evil. It's true there are demonic forces in this world. Then the evil in the world can't be reduced to simply human choices. Now, do we create some of our own junk? You bet. Some of the, some of the stupid in my life I signed up for, I did. I created some of my own stupid, didn't you? But, you know, some of it is that we live in a world that's full of evil. Christianity says there's more evil than you can count for in the world just from the cumulative effect of wrong choices. But on the other hand, evil forces are not the equal of God. I mean, don't, don't miss this. Evil forces are there, but they are not equal to God. Satan is a fallen angel leading fallen angels, and God is infinitely more powerful, and in the very end, not only can God overcome them, he most certainly will. I mean, this is the most mind-blowing promise woven through the scriptures to give us hope and confidence in this life-altering encounter. If you know who the enemy is, the second question to consider is, where's the front? Well, scripture tells us where the main point of attack is. Several times, what does Satan say? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. If you're all-powerful, if you can all do all things, this is Satan's main attack, not only against Jesus, but against us. I mean, God has assured us that, that Jesus, his beloved son, came here that he might live for us, die for us, shed his blood for us, raised from the dead three days later, that we might have victory over this life, over death, and live with him for eternity. He did all that for us. And what Satan's main attack is to this, don't believe it. He says, just don't believe it. But God's trying to get us to understand that Jesus is not just a good man by word and example who tells us how to live. This isn't Dr. Phil or Oprah giving us advice here. Nor is he merely a heavenly king who came to destroy all evil in one stroke because if that were the case, he'd wipe us out. I mean, you look at this and you say, wait a minute. 
then how does he come? Jesus comes as a king who comes not to a throne but to a cross. He comes to be tempted and tried to suffer and to die. Why? So that we can receive God's gift of him freely as a gift. And so if we rest in Jesus' work for us, we can be adopted into God's family by grace. And then what does our heavenly father have the opportunity to say when we obey him? That's my boy. That's my girl. That's who I'm proud of. Instead of trying to obey and instead of just trying to turn from making evil or simply wrong choices that displease God, not out of fear or punishment or to prove our worth. I mean, what a horrible existence that is to live in fear of, I have to do this or he's not going to love me. And one of the greatest promises I can give you is God loves you, period. You can't make him not love you. You say, well, Chuck, you don't know what I, all I've done, but he does. And he loves you. Instead, out of this grateful joy, desire to resemble him, delight in him, serve him, the one who saved us, we allow him to change our lives. Our self-image now rests in a love we can't lose, found solely in a relationship with Jesus. I mean, instead of looking at all of our anxieties and our insecurities, they begin to evaporate. Success and failure don't puff us up and defeat us. We're, We're not driven by unhappiness over our looks or our status. Satan doesn't want you to have that power and peace. I mean, Satan wants to keep us ignorant of the gospel itself. He wants us confused about the fact that we can be justified, put right with God by saying, Jesus, come be the boss of my life, come be my Lord. But that leaves an unanswered question. What's our best defense against the battle in the fight? Notice Jesus doesn't combat Satan with incantations or mystical, magical powers. He doesn't battle him with money. And nor should we look to those tactics. Notice the way Jesus uses the Bible. Jesus uses the Scripture every time he's assaulted by Satan. Satan wants to destroy our grasp on this truth. But even more, he wants to affect the beliefs in our heart. According to the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of our emotions, but it's also the source of our fundamental commitments. What we believe we are, what we really do. It's the source of our commitments, our hopes, our trust. And from the heart flow our thinking, our feelings, and our actions. What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. Did you hear that? What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. If Satan can get us to consent with our mind to a God of loving grace, but get your heart to believe, you have to do something, go through somebody, count enough beads, do enough work, go to Sunday school enough, do all those things. If Satan can make you believe, yeah, he loves you, he's a just God, but you still have to do stuff for him to love you, Satan wins. That's why everything Satan says denies the promises of God in the Bible. Jesus responds to Satan, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, then 6.16, then finally 6.13. And even while he was dying on the cross, when he was in his deepest agony, he quoted Psalm 22.1. Listen, when we're in our moments of personal pain or battle, the things that come out of our mind and our mouth are the most primal, truthful things in our being. And when Jesus was in those moments, out came the words of God the Father. Listen, folks, if Jesus didn't presume to face Satan in this world without a profound knowledge of God's Word in mind and heart, how on earth will we face it?
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. So if you haven't picked this book up and spent three, four, five minutes a day in it this week, what we're missing is something great in our walk with Christ. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, but you set this down and you pick it up next Sunday and bring it to church, you're missing the victory and Satan's having a field day in our life. If you're here today and you don't have one of these, we'll get you one. But what Jesus is teaching us is, listen, know in the battle that this is the way. But listen, here's the greatest news. There's more. We've got one more resource in this. In this spiritual warfare, and it's in this passage, and it's Jesus himself. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he's our great high priest. Now, in the time that was written, priests were counselors and healers. And we are told that Jesus can empathize with our weaknesses and can give us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because according to this encounter, he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He is there to help us face the reality of the evil that we face every day, both inside and outside ourselves, having done it himself. So as we fight Satan's lies in our hearts and his works in our world, let's don't just rely on the word of the Lord. Let's desire Let's, let's, let's make sure we desire and we bank on the Lord of the Word. And church, let me assure you, we don't just have a book as perfect as it is. We have Jesus himself who's been through every fiery challenge so intense we can't even imagine. And he's done it for us, now strengthened with this deep empathy, with this tender power, we can come through it all beside him. And today you can encounter Jesus because he took that encounter for us. And he didn't just fight the war, he won it. When he said, I'll give my life that you might have life. Today, my prayer is, you encounter Jesus.